Apostle Paul didn't have to deal with all this. Okay, so um, I'm the uh, lead pastor of preaching here at Sylvania Church, and so glad you guys could be with us today. I'm going to do something incredibly different with you guys. I figured, hey, if I get a shot to talk with a college and career class, and if there's any group in the church that would be totally like forgiving and fluid enough for me to go like really off the deep end for a minute, it would be this group. And so... Uh, today we're going to talk about, if you, if you didn't see it on Facebook, uh, a theology of doubt, the place of uncertainty in the Christian experience. Now, this isn't actually intended to be a pun, but it is. I'm not exactly sure what I think and feel about all the stuff that I'm about to tell you about doubt and uncertainty, uh, and that's not meant to be a joke, that's for real. So this is going to be a lot more fluid than my normal well-structured outlines like you'll see in a minute uh, in the worship service coming up. It's just real kind of... And if you want to interact a little bit with something crazy that I say, because there will be a few crazy things that I'm going to say, by all means, pipe in. So uh, where we are going to start, though, is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, because I do want to ground us a little bit in this, in this idea before we move into the realm of doubt and uncertainty and its place in the Christian experience. So uh, if you're not familiar with it, Hebrews chapter 11 is the beginning of what's known as the great faith chapter, you know, they start walking through the faith people, the faithful ones, the ones who have triumphed in their faith and have been declared righteous because of their faith and all these kinds of things. And, and each one of these individuals that are, are listed, obviously are not perfect people. They have their flaws, but they are honored because they are faithful people. They, they're full of faith. Uh, they are faithful to the things of God for the most part. And, um, and so in the middle of this, right toward the beginning, you know, it kind of starts walking through some of these things and starts um, with Abel and his better sacrifice than Cain. And talks about Enoch. And, and just before it starts talking about Noah, in verse 6, it says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so... Here we have a very blanket thesis statement for Christianity, that faith is essential, that faith is important, that faith is a, a dynamic reality of what it means to be a Christian person. Now, what has often been presented and may have been presented to you most of the time in your life is that the thing that is antithetical to, to faith is doubt. And if you had the religious experience that I've had, and everybody in here has very different backgrounds, but if you've had the religious experience that I've had, then what was presented was, well, if you have any significant doubts, then you're a sinner. And you just don't have enough faith. And you really need to repent and just get more faith. And quit being so wicked and having all these doubts and having all these questions about the things of the faith. I mean, come on, it just says it right here in the Bible. Just believe it and quit being so wicked. Some of you may have experienced that at certain points. If you're also like me, and I think that many of you are people who are quite thoughtful and you think deeply and meaningfully about your faith and about God and about how that relates to the real world that you find yourselves in, there's probably been those moments where you've hidden away in the corner of your room or in a coffee shop or uh, someone that you really, really, really trust and you've kind of opened up just a little bit more than you normally would and you said, I'm not real sure about... And then you can just let whatever that issue is that you ought to be really sure about, but you're not so sure about it. That's just the reality that we often find ourselves in. If you think meaningfully about your relationship with God, about the existence of God, about 
the incarnation, about the substitutionary atonement, about the need for forgiveness of sin, and all of the kinds of things that go into the deep, meaningful parts of the Christian faith, there's going to be doubt. It's just a normal part of the human existence. So, I want to ask the, the question first. Is there actually a problem with doubt? Because what's been presented for most people is, don't doubt. Get over it. Deal with it. it it's obviously sin if you're doubting. You just need to repent and move on. But is there actually a problem with doubt? And so I don't want to spend a lot of time sweeping through the Bible, but I just want to kind of give some brief snapshots from the Bible of people who doubted and it was okay. And I'm going to start with the one that we all have to agree it was okay that they doubted because the Scripture teaches that He was sinless, the only one who was sinless, and that was Jesus. We have this wonderful picture in the Garden of Gethsemane when He's alone and everyone's falling asleep and... The soldiers are getting ready to come. And it says that he's praying, sweating as if it were drops of blood. And he prays this at least twice. He says, Father, if it would be your will, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, yours. So we see in the moment right before the crucifixion, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, sinless, flawless man, Saying, basically, in essence, saying, if there's another way to do this, now would be a really great time for you to let me in on that. And there seems to be some significant doubting going on that's obviously not sinful. And there's really no other way for us as human beings with the words that we have to talk about the experience that's going on with Jesus besides that. And we know that the Scripture teaches very plainly that He was without sin. And so whatever experience He's having there of uncertainty is not a wicked experience. We, we, we know this to be true, but it's kind of logical extension. Yes, sir? I can't help but think that's modalism, Patrick. That's modalism. That's his humanism right. talking. That's not God talking. Okay, and that's fine. And we, <coughs> we can get into a really intriguing conversation about the nature of the Incarnation, and we could spend the rest of our time talking about the mystery of it rather than uncertainty and, and Christian doubt and theology. But the truth is, is that what we have to say is an agreement with Philippians chapter 2 about that. That he laid aside his glory of the divine and took on the veil of flesh. And that all the things that he did, he did in faith. That's what the actual gospels say about him. And so while it's true that he was fully divine, we know from the clear teaching of Scripture that when he acted in this world, he acted on behalf of his humanity. That's how he acted in this world. And so, um, and so while it may be true that that sounds like modalism, Patrick, it act, if you guys don't know the video, you need to look up. It's hilarious. Um, uh, in this particular case, that's one of the great mysteries of incarnation. He acts in his humanity. We know that to be true about his first advent. And so whatever we need to say about it. Hence, he did all things in faith, which is one of the cool things about the Christian experience. When we come into the incarnation in Christ, we take on his faith-filled humanity. That's, that's what we do. That's the beauty of our relationship with Jesus. And so that's why I start with him, because in his humanity, because that's how he was acting in his first advent, in his humanity, and by the way, yeah, and by the way, and this is important, I'm glad he brought that up, and this is for a whole other lesson. Maybe I'll get invited back another time to talk about this. Don't default all the awesome, miraculous stuff that Jesus did to his divine. Because that would actually be a severe form of modalism that would be very incorrect. And so, uh, actually condemned as heretical by, by the 4th century. And so, that's the whole of the conversation. So, he acted in faith. That's what he did. And in his sinless faithfulness, 
right at the end, he says, hey, if there's another way for this to happen, that'd, that'd be awesome. We have to do something with that. Now, I'll just, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of letting that sink in for a second because we don't normally think that way because we've been hammered in probably, if you've been in most evangelical conservative churches, like I mentioned at the start, doubt's bad. There's got to be something wrong with you if you have doubt. You can start then to work back from Jesus to other people who are flawed by sin and their doubt may be an extension of their sin. I, I will grant you that and we'll talk about that later. But you have issues of Abraham. So they go to a new city. Tell them you're my sister because you're a beautiful woman and they'll kill me and they'll take you from me. There's doubt. God's given him this great promise of this is what I'm going to do with you. Obviously, you're not going to die when you go to the city or I can't do this thing with you. And yet he has doubt. Doubt so much that it leads him into sin. Now, I'm not saying the doubt was sin, but it leads him into sin. We see this with King David taking the counting of the census. We see this. I can go on and on. The whole book of Job is essentially about this. And yet along the way, he doesn't curse God. Yet he gets a reprimand from God. But you notice the reprimand he gets from God isn't necessarily for his doubting. It's for other things. If you pay really close attention to the great speech God gives at the end of the book, it's not because he had doubt. It's because of the attitude with which he had his doubt. There's, there, there really seems to be a distinction there. And so I don't really think that there's necessarily a problem with doubt in the Scripture like you might have always heard. And why do I think that? Well, I want to move to the next thing. And this is where the questions are probably going to fly because this is going to sound a little loony. And my wife just left, so this is perfect time for me to really open up and say some nutty stuff because she usually keeps me in check when she's in the room and she's gone. All right, so um, I want to talk for a few minutes about what I'm dubbing here the human experience of unfulfilled reason. In other words, the tension of inherent permanent agnosticism that is found in human beings. We are not God. We're made in God's image, but we're not God. We do not have omniscience. And guess what? Contrary to what you may have heard from popular evangelical preachers, when we reach glory one day, we won't have omniscience then either. We don't suddenly become, we don't suddenly take on one of the eternal attributes that only exist in God when we reach glory one day. There will always in our human existence be a sense of not knowing. That's part of what makes us human. In fact, if you go back to the Genesis narrative, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, what is the tree about that they're not supposed to eat from? It's the tree of what? Knowledge. Knowledge. There's a sense in which they knew stuff. They even had a sense of what was right and wrong before they ate from the tree because they knew it's wrong for me to eat from this tree and it's right for me to eat from these other trees. They had dominion that they were supposed to have and subduing the earth and all the other kinds of actions that they were supposed to do. And they understood that those things were good and right. And they understood not doing those things were not good and right. So they had a sense of knowing, but it was an incomplete knowledge. And so this tree is a representation of what they long to have but can't have fully. They can't ever have a full knowledge of what's good and evil like God does because God's the only one who has a full knowledge of that reality. He is the knowing one. He is the one that can fully ascertain the distinction between all things because He knows the end from the beginning. We start talking about stuff from like Isaiah and things like that. I know the end from the beginning, the first from the last, and all, He sees it all as one great sphere and we can talk about the eternality of God's knowledge and that sort of thing. That's not us. And the word agnosticism simply means, it's a Greek word that means not knowing, to not know. That's the reality of the human experience forever. 
Well, we've been there 10,000 years. We'll have no less days to sing His praise. Well, why does the praise keep growing? Because we keep finding out more stuff. And there's no end to the things that we begin to continue to learn in glory one day. There's a sense in which there is an inherent, permanent agnosticism to the human condition. God made us in His image, but He made us less than Him. And one of the ways that He made us less than Him is that we will never come to the end of knowledge. We just won't. And so since there is this experience of unfulfilled reason, there's always going to be, at least on this side of glory, I don't know what the other side of glory is going to look like, but on this side of glory, underneath the umbrella of the fall, there's always going to be a sense of doubt because God has made me to try to find the end of things. He's made me to be a reasonable creature. I, I really do believe that the old theologians got it right. That is what it means to be made in the image of God, is to be a reasoning creature. That's what sets us apart from all of the rest of the animal kingdom. And I'll never come to the end of that. The thing that makes me most like God also shows me how distinct I actually am from God. Because I have to strive with great aggression to try to gain insight and knowledge. And I never come to the end of it, and it's always incomplete. And because of the influence of the fall, I usually get a lot of it wrong. Wow, I think I've got this figured out. I think I understand this. I think I know this. And then before you know it, I do just a little bit more study, and wow, the whole thing falls apart. It's like, wow, I've been really wrong about this for a really long time. And then you have to start all over again and pick all the pieces up. And guess what? God doesn't have to do that. But He made us that way. We long for that. We want to know why. It's no accident that by the time kids hit three or four years old, that becomes their favorite word. Why, 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 why? But it's not that they're trying to be obnoxious. <laughs> it's the question that we keep asking for the rest of our lives. Sort, well, yeah, some of them, sometimes they are just being obnoxious. Hence why I said under the umbrella of the fall. You know, so there's this sense of they really are sometimes just being obnoxious. So, um, and so we have this human experience of unfulfilled reason. There's this tension of inherent permanent agnosticism. We just don't know, but we are made to want to know. And what that's called, at least on this side of glory, most of the time is uncertainty and doubt. I want to know something, but I just don't know it. I'm trying to strive toward knowing it, and I find the end of it. That's the tension. The words that we use are uncertainty and doubt. That's what we use about that. And we never come to the end of that. It's always there. And in truth, God made us this way. Even prior to the fall, if you go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, that's still how we were made. Not with full knowledge like God, but a desire to reach for knowledge as best as we can. Now, of course, I wonder what it would have looked like had the world not gone into the fall. You get a picture of Jesus like that. Everybody's tripping on Him when He's 12 years old because He knows so much stuff. <laughs> you know, it's like, everybody's like, wow, this kid's incredible. You know, I think that that's more of what we probably would have been like apart from the fall of mankind. So, let's, let's jump right into it. And this is where I'm, I'm sure a lot of questions will fly. And, and by all means, insert stuff. So why do we doubt? Why do we have these legitimate doubts? I have, five, I have five reasons here as Christians. Now, I'm coming from not just a general human worldview, but from a, a particular Orthodox Christian worldview. Why do we as Orthodox Christians doubt? Now, I'm going to go ahead and say the first one and get it out of the way um, because I really do think that it's legitimate, but the least real. It may be sin-related. It, it may just be because you're a sinner and because you want to be a sinner. And so suddenly you're having this great crisis of belief about Jesus and God because at the end of the day, you want to sleep around with some guy or some girl or both. 
You know, it's the world we live in, you know. And you just don't want to have any sort of moral compass anymore. So the best way to throw out your moral compass is to throw out your faith and your belief and your moral perspective. And so, hey, let me just have all this doubt. Oh, look at all the fun I get that now I'm a doubter. You know, that, there really may be some of that. And I'm not going to deny that that's some people's reality. They see things, they want to do things, they feel restricted by their religion, they can't do things anymore, so just chunk the whole thing. Oh, I'm just an agnostic now. I get to live however I want to. <laughs> Until I find myself again, ooh, party time, right. And so there really may be some of that. I'm not going to deny that. that. That happens a lot. But for some of you, you've been told that's the only reason people doubt. And I'm going to keep coming back to that on purpose. Because I know for, my, for me, I'm, I'm a severe skeptic. I'm going to get real personal for a second. I'm a severe skeptic, and I always have been. And there's been seasons of doubt in my life since my conversion that have been extreme and intense, even while in pastoral ministries. There's been even time, I've been here almost five, uh, four and a half years now here at Sylvania. There's been times here even at Sylvania where I've preached sermons, and when I have got done preaching, I've sat down and I've gone, wow, I'm just not real sure I believe anything I just said. Because there's a severity of doubt that comes on some people. This is not a unique experience for me. You can go back through church history and you can see the normalcy of this. Charles Spurgeon had it. Various numbers of the uh, popes had it. Uh, some of the great missionaries of the past had it. This is just a reality for a lot of people who think in a meaningful way about their relationship with God and the world around them. And so it may be sin-related, but I came to realize that a lot of the times when I was having these ex severe doubt experiences myself... There was no open sin. There was no hidden sin that I was unaware of. There, there was, I felt really guilty because I'd always been told you're supposed to feel guilty when you doubt. And then I started looking around going, well, as best I can tell, I think I'm walking rightly with God right now. I, I, I think. You know, obviously there's no one who's ever in, in a perfect state. But So what are the other four reasons? I have four other reasons that I think are legitimate reasons why thinking Christian people have these kinds of doubts. The first one is what I call a history of variant scriptural interpretation. A history of variant scriptural interpretation. So what does Genesis chapter 1 through 3 actually mean? Was there really a talking snake? And did it really just take six days? Every science class that I've ever been to since I was a small kid said that that's madness. But that doesn't necessarily mean the science class got it right. That's a little too close. I see everybody's getting really uncomfortable with that one. So what we'll do is we'll slide over to the issue that happened 400 years ago that's very closely related to it. Is the earth really set on a fixed foundational point and doesn't move and everything else goes around it? Is it actually the center of the very small known universe and the sun and the moon and all of the other planets go around it? Some of you are looking at me really funny, but like, Phil, that's stupid. Of course not. You realize 400 years ago that there was a big fight about this in the church. A dude named Galileo made a telescope, and he said, hey, guess what? Earth's not the center of the universe. In fact, we're actually in a very small solar system inside of a larger universe. And the sun is the center of our particular corner of the, where we find ourselves. And you know what the church said? That's crazy talk. You know why they said that? Because there's some passages in the Bible that say the earth is fixed and it does not move and it keep, and the sun. You know, we think they're using poetry. Oh, look at that beautiful poetic language. The sun moves across the sky. No, they actually thought that. That's really how they understood their cosmos to work. That's what was going on. 
It took the church 250 years to say, oh, wait, Galileo was right. We've been reading the Bible wrong this whole time. I'm just using this as one small example. There have been variant scriptural interpretations in the past 2,000 years that have been so diverse from each other that any meaningful thinking person who actually engages all the different interpretational points will have to stop and go, well, I'm not really sure what I need to think about this. And you know what? That's actually okay. We think it's not. It's good, sovereign grace, reformed, Calvinistic, Baptist. We think we've got to know. It's mortalism, Patrick. We've got to know. We've got to be able to throw out all the big words and know the heresies and know the ins and outs and the tension. And we can't let a lot of room for mystery be there. But at the end of the day, it's really okay sometimes to go, wow, this is the mind of God and I have absolutely no idea how this is supposed to work. I'm trying to figure it. I'm trying to get to the end of it. I'm trying to grab a hold of something to stand on. But there's some stuff going on in here that's way outside of my pay grade. And I'm trying to reach up there and grab it. And I keep missing it. And at the end of the day, that's actually alright. And I'm trying to encourage you guys that that's okay. Because you may have heard for most of your life that that's not okay. You can't say you don't know. Somebody asks you a deep meaning theological question, you can't look them in the face and say, I don't know, because it makes your faith seem small and weak and God little. God's not little. He's plenty big. And in fact, it shows how big He is for me to go, you know what, there's some things about my God I don't know. If I can actually answer all of your questions about God, what does that actually say about the nature of my God? <laughs> it's not quite as big as I thought. If I can answer all the questions, wow, wow He's... <laughs> He's a very mid-range sized God. <laughs> not quite, he's not very big at all. In fact, that's one of the things that I've always found so beautiful about rich, deep, meaningful Christianity. Buddhism, I get that. I actually get that. It really can make sense. Like, it can fit all in the brain. It really can. Non-theistic Buddhism. Not the weird folk Shinto style Buddhism with like the strange deities that aren't deities. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about true, raw, traditional, the Buddha Buddhism that's not deistic. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Islam actually makes sense. I disagree with it, but it makes sense. Here's a God that wants you to work hard and be good. And if you do the five pillars and you try to be better than you're bad, you're going to get in. There you go. That makes sense. That's easy. Old Judaism following the law, like raw old school Judaism, follow the law. That makes, you know what, that makes sense. Triune incarnational Christianity. <laughs> wow. That's, there's some stuff in there that makes you go, I, oh, okay. And when you really start reading through the Bible, there's some stuff in there that kind of makes you just stop and go, I don't really know what to do with that at all. I just, I, I don't know what, I don't, I don't really know what to do with Philippians chapter 2. What do you mean he laid aside his glory and veiled himself in flesh? How do you do that? How do you stay all God and all man and then seem like you're not one? I don't. What? It's okay to say we don't get it. And it's okay to admit that there have been some really, really bad interpretations of Scripture and that there have been some really, really good interpretations of Scripture and that there's been a whole lot of mediocre interpretations of Scripture. It's really okay to admit that. And friends, I'm just going to be honest with you. When you really start to study that, it's one of the great catch-22s of our kind of faith, the good, robust, sovereign grace kind of faith. Because we scream out loudly, 
study the word. And then when people really start studying the word, do you know what it usually produces if they study it honestly? It's, it produces some of this doubt. Because there's stuff in there that makes you kind of go, I don't really know what to do with this. And I just want to encourage you this morning that that's okay. That doesn't mean you're sinful or wicked or bad. <laughs> if it's not okay, I need to quit doing what I'm doing because it happens pretty much every week when I'm trying to get ready for a sermon. I read something new in the Scriptures, and by new I mean something I read before and then I'm seeing it a different way I've never seen it before, and it completely rocks my Christian worldview, and I go, I don't know what to do with it. So there's a history of variant scriptural interpretation. Third, there are distinctions between ancient worldviews and our present one, and this causes us doubt. I'm going to piggyback off of what I just said a minute ago about how the universe is structured. When you consider who God wrote the Scriptures to, and you consider the worldview that they lived in, if you don't understand some things about culture and trying to make descriptive application to our present day, it causes a lot of doubt. Abraham, I want you to show that you really believe in me and that you're righteous. How can I do that, God? I want you to take the only son of promise that I've given you and I want you to tie him up and I want you to kill him on top of a mountain for me. But hey, if that doesn't cause you a little bit of doubt, <laughs> there may be something wrong with you. I want you to take your kid and kill him so you can show me how much you really believe in me and love me. Wait, what? But when you start doing a little bit of understanding about the worldview that they lived in and how things worked at that particular time, it makes a little more sense. But for us right now, it goes, wait a minute, Whoa, time out, time out. That seemed really weird. For them, the universe was a dome. The dead people were actually under the dome. All of the heavens were contained in the outer edges of the top of the dome. The earth actually was a flat place. This is how they understood how the world looked. This is why everybody thought Christopher Columbus, even by the late 1400s, was not, you're going to fall off the edge is what they told him. This is what's going to happen to you. You're going to go sailing and you're just going to fall off because it's a flat thing. And when you start understanding other worldviews, ancient worldviews, and then you see that the Scripture was written to these people with a different kind of worldview, they had a different way of understanding how life actually worked and how things really were, and then you try to bring it forward and make applications from, sadly, through what we were talking about in number two, these variant scriptural interpretations, that creates doubt. And you know what? That's not necessarily a bad thing. Because it's good to wrestle with worldviews. Not just with other people's worldviews, but with your own worldview. That's a good thing to do. That's ne never a bad thing to stop and go, wow, am I really viewing the world in the right, best possible way? I really hope that this is the kind of question you've already asked yourselves. Not one that you're just now starting to ask yourself. I, but if you know what, if you're just now starting to do that, kudos to you. That's a great thing to do. If you really think at 24, 28, 33, 36, a little bit more than that for some others in the room. We'll, we'll leave that alone. If, if, if you feel like you've arrived at a place, my, my worldview is so solid, there's nothing in it that's flawed. What monstrositous arrogance. Are you God? Right, let's go back to the first thing I talked about. Do you have omniscience? where you can see the end of all things and know that everything's perfectly aligned the way it exactly needs to be, that's absurd. 
And so it's never a bad thing to stop and take a step back and, and get a big grand picture and go, okay, these people used to see the world like this. And there's some things about that that just seem really messed up. But are there some things about my way of viewing the world that are as equally weird and off? And what can I learn from them in the way that they view the world, apart from all the trappings of the way the world looks for me today? This creates uncertainty in our minds. And that's okay. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Fourth, and, um, and uh, I was hesitant to include this one. This one was a late addition. <clears throat> the moral and philosophical tension of depravity and apparent human moral goodness creates uncertainty. As good Calvinistic Baptist types, or even if you're just kind of a nominal uh, Catholic or even a, a remotely practicing Jew or anybody who's from the general monotheistic religion worldviews of Judaism, Islam, or any form of Christianity apart from Unitarian Universalism, you're going to affirm some kind of idea of human depravity. The denial of original sin contaminating the human person is actually very technically a violation of all three major monotheistic re religions. It just is. You, you can't be a really good Jew... Muslim, or practicing Christian and deny some kind of influence of original sin. You just, you just, you, you've cut out from underneath those religions any of their meaning. And yet when you look around the world, sometimes, oftentimes, you see what seems to be apparent moral goodness and non-religious practicing human beings. They just seem to be really good people. And they just don't seem to be as bad off as what you would have thought they were. In fact, sometimes it's the pro-choice, pro-gay atheist that seems to be the nicest guy on the block. And when you see that, but you know that there's supposed to be this depravity. <laughs> People are supposed to be bad. You know, the old John Piper thing, bad. I don't know if you've seen that or not. It's hilarious. It's so funny. <laughs> And then you look and you see, you know, these selfless acts of heroism that people do sometimes. You know, people who donate blood. They don't sell blood. They just, I just want to give blood so that other people can have life. Why do you do that? I just, just want to donate blood to help other people have life. I don't, I'm not trying to please God or uh, magnify the glory of Jesus or you know, I don't really believe in any of that stuff. I just, I care about human life. So I'll do this. And you kind of stop and you take a step back and you look at it and you go, but what about depravity? How do I share the gospel with a guy like that? <laughs> you know, he seems like such a good guy. How do I tell him he's a bad guy? The Bible tells me he's a bad guy. I'm trying to find where he's a bad guy. I'm, I'm going to watch this guy really close until I see that he's a bad guy. That should cause us to ask some questions. It should. And the questions that should cause us to ask, in my opinion, are less about that person and less about the truthfulness of depravity and more about why am I not more that way if I claim to have the greater thing, which is Jesus. That, that's further where we should go. But it should make us stop and pause and go, wait a minute. I thought the world was supposed to be like this, but it appears to be this way. That's legitimate. That's not sinful. That's not a sinful reason to have some uncertainty. That's legitimate. 
to make you kind of stop and go, huh? and of course, if you have a greater understanding of depravity, you'll realize that it's more than just the eternal actions of man and their definition of what morality is. And some of you are nodding and you get that. But the appearance of things should make you at least pause and stop and go, am I missing something? And we're going to bring all this to a glue in a minute because I know some of you are very uncomfortable right now. And I'm glad for that. That's good. That was the purpose of this today. I'm giving Kevin a lot of extra... I, I know, Kevin's very uncomfortable. I'm giving Kevin a lot of extra work to do when he comes back in February. I told him this. and so <laughs> He has no doubts at all that he's uncomfortable. Okay, and so the last one, the last reason why we doubt. And this is the big one. If you think meaningfully about your faith long enough, this is the one that will... And, and I, I, I usually don't like to speak for other people in the way they think. But this will drive you to have a lot of uncertainty about things. It is the moral and philosophical tension of divine sovereignty. We as good Calvinists love just jumping the, you know, into the Psalms. The Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And so anytime something just seems off, that's just the trump card. He's God. He does whatever He wants to do. Divine sovereignty. But there are times when divine sovereignty creates moral and philosophical tension. So God gives the law. You guys have been going through the Exodus. So God gives the law on top of the mountain with Moses. He's up there by himself and he's doing his thing. It says, Ten Commandments. You got the first four, it's towards God. You got the last six, it's towards human beings. And one of the big six is don't kill people. All right? And so then Moses gets ready to come down off the mountain with Joshua, and there's this big you know, rebel rousing going on. Sounds like the sound of war in the camp. No, no, wait, that's the sound of festivities. And then they get down to the bottom, and they've made an idol. They haven't been told yet they're not supposed to do that. But they've made an idol. And so what is Moses' response to this? Anybody remember? Have you guys gotten, you've gotten there, haven't you? Not yet. You're not there yet. Okay, does anybody recall from your Sunday school days? Huh? Four more weeks. What, what, is he, what does he tell them to do? Every man do what? He tells the Levites to go kill everyone who's part of this. Go get your sword from off of your thigh and go out among the camp and slay all who have been participants in this. Wait, what? What? Yeah, they left that part out in kids' Sunday school class. They always do. <laughs> They, skip, they, they politely skip that in the third grade Sunday school class. They always do. It's so funny. As an aside, I think through all of the like, major stories that we do in kids' Sunday school classes and how they're all actually huge judgment narrative stories. You know, let's talk about Noah and the animals. Hey, Noah built an ark. Yeah, and then he killed everyone on earth. You know, and it's like, wait, we kind of bypassed that. You know, so anyway, hey, Joshua in the Battle of Jericho. And the walls fell down and killed everyone in the city. You know, it's like, we don't, we don't usually emphasize that. You know, I, I would love to see the looks on the faces and the conversations with parents if we really did those stories with the kids the way we're supposed to. But anyway, uh, that's an aside. But it actually touches on what I'm talking about here. There's this moral, philosophical tension of divine sovereignty. So God says, I want you as a people not to kill other people. Moses comes down off the mountain and he goes, idol worship, get your sword and kill all of these people. Wait. Well, why was it okay for him to do that? The Lord's in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. God told me to. It's divine judgment. And as Christians, we read that and we go, well, yeah, okay. God's sovereign. But then when the Muslims do it, and we see it on TV, and they say, well, why did you blow that school up with all those kids in it? God told me to. We go, oh, that's ridiculous. God, God would never do that. 
he'd never tell you to go kill all those people. That's absurd. What a crazy religion that is. Wait, what? And that, what? When you start chewing on these things, you start thinking about these things, it is not sinful to stop and go, I don't know what to do with this. There seems to be something going on here that's just kind of odd. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Philip, you have just given me all of the reasons that I need to leave this class, not come to the worship service, and be an agnostic. No, I haven't. Because this is not the first time that I've thought about these things. And it won't be the last time that I've thought about these things. And I've thought more deeply about these things than I can express in the few minutes that we have left here together this morning. So what do you do in the midst of these kinds of things? What do you do? As a Christian, you are convinced that Jesus is the Christ. I'm coming back to where we started. What does it say in Hebrews 11.6? And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. Alright, so you've done this. And I know that that verse automatically makes all the Calvinists room very uncomfortable. <gasps> but seek Him? I didn't do that. But uh, Okay, what it tells you to do. And so here we are. We've sought out God. We've sought out Christ. We have found Him. He has found us. All the ways that you want to make that work. And we are in Christ and He is in us. Okay? And we believe that He's the Christ. He's the Son of the God. We're, as best we can be, not modalists. We really believe in the Trinity. We really believe in the, the uh, two yet one unified natures of Jesus, that He is all God and all man. We've come to great Orthodox, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Christianity. That's where we find ourselves to be. And yet we doubt. We have doubts. And they're not sinful doubts. I'm not, you know, we're not trying to leave our spouses or, you know, steal things from the bank. Or, you know, we're not trying to find excuses to participate in immorality. We just have really conscious, I'm reading the Bible, I'm looking at the world, I'm thinking through the philosophical moral implications of these issues, and it causes me to have a lot of struggle with this. As it should, because you have a permanent inherent agnosticism where you'll never reach the end of things. And so it should cause you to have some uncertainty about this. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. So what do you do? In other words, how do you doubt... And this is going to sound so weird. Are you ready for this? Great paradox of the morning. How do you doubt faithfully? <laughs> how do you have faithful doubting? How do you do that? Well, here we go. First, you pursue truth wherever it may be found. You pursue truth wherever it may be found. If you're paying very close attention when you're walking through the Old Testament with Kevin, you will see that very often the truth of God doesn't come to the people of God from other people of God. Very often the truth of God comes to the people of God from the folks who weren't supposed to know anything about God. And this is very common in the Old Testament. It's ridiculously common in the Old Testament, actually. One of the greatest tales of this is in Joshua with Rahab the harlot. I know that your God is the one true God and that He has given this land into your hands. And remember me and my family when you come and your God gives you great victory in this place today. Guess who got to be her great, 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 great grandson? Jesus. In the Exodus, and you guys have already done the part where they left Egypt. Yeah, we are that far, right? Okay. Right. And it says that they plundered the Egyptians and they took all of their goods and that many of the Egyptians left with them. There's at least four Gentiles in Jesus' genealogy listed between the two Gospels. 
It's actually a really incredible part of the scarlet thread that the people who are supposed to be in darkness and foolish actually had a great deal of the truth. Why? Because truth is something that is part of a grace gift. God gives it to people. And we have to get off of this thing that the only time that we're ever actually going to find truth is when we read Piper books and listen to MacArthur sermons. Guess what? That's great places to find truth. But you are on occasion going to find it in some places where you didn't expect to see it. From some people that you thought were really wrong about a lot of things. It's one of the great joys that I've had being a, a church history expert in the patristic age. Because most of us as Reformed, Calvinistic, Baptist, Protestant types would look at those guys and say, wow, they were so wrong about so much stuff. To the point that I've heard some people condemn some of them because of some of the things they believe is, you can't be a Christian. I've heard people say, you can't be a Christian and believe this. And then I start thinking through the people that believed that, that there's no way I'm going to say that they're not a Christian. <laughs> Just no way. You can't believe that baptism actually removes your sin and is part of salvation and be a Christian. Thank you, just threw Augustine in hell. And pretty much every, well, Martin Luther too, and everybody before him. So there were no true Christians until the Baptist move, particular Baptist movement of the 1700s. Congratulations. Wow, the gospel's been really great all along the way. <laughs> yeah, no. So what you do is you find truth wherever it can really be found. It has to be real, true gospel truth. But I think we as more sovereign-oriented, word-based Christians, which is a wonderful thing to be, we forget that the Scripture itself teaches us that there's two great books of God. That there is the revealed book of God, the Bible, the, the, the all-trustworthy, sufficient truth of God as revealed through the prophets and the apostles manifested in the person of Jesus. And that's the main book of God. But that, that main book says that there's a little book, a smaller book of God, the book of creation itself. That God can actually be seen in it. And that when people dig into it, He often shows Himself in ways to them when they look there that they wouldn't have found when they looked in the book. It says that in this book. And so it's not shocking that every once in a while we might go and read something from somebody that is completely unrelated to, quote, spiritual things. And I hate that distinction because all things are spiritual things. All things come from the hand of God. There's actually technically nothing that's secular. All things are sacred. There's just things that are wicked and things that are holy. <laughs> the improper use of sacred things versus the proper use of sacred things. And so when you start reading some of these guys who've looked to the stars, they've looked under the microscope, or they've understood how things work, or they engage culture and philosophy, and they actually take a look at the world around them, you know, a lot of times they actually say some things that really reflect God's truth in a meaningful, wonderful way that you wouldn't have got from a pastor guy like me giving you a sermon. So what you do, if you're going to be a faithful doubter, <laughs> if you're going to doubt faithfully, hey, I have a lot of questions about this, then you need to seek out truth wherever it can be found. You really need to look. What you don't need to do, and that's the second thing, is you need to not do this pursuit without having honesty and integrity. You need to be faithful to pursue the truth honestly and with integrity. In other words, don't start it from the sinful perspective. Because remember, the first reason why we might doubt is because of sin. Hey, I want to be bisexual and I want to sleep around with a lot of people. So I'm going to ditch Jesus and I'm going to find all the reasons why I don't need to believe in Him anymore so I can go do that. Guess what? That's not pursuing truth honestly and with integrity. It's just not. 
What you've done is you've established a lifestyle worldview that you want to have, and you're going to do everything you can to ditch the rest of the things that are keeping you from getting to the lifestyle worldview you want to embrace, whether it's true or not. That is not how you pursue truth. You pursue truth with honesty and integrity. You ask honest questions. Is this really best? Is this really good? Is this reflective of true, the, beauty, uh, the beautiful and the good? Those three great philosophical realities that we find in the Scriptures. You have to actually pursue these things in a meaningful way with integrity. Not because you're trying to reach a certain end, but because your true end that you desire is what's actually real. That, that's what you're chasing after. And again, there's an inherent permanent agnosticism. You won't ever come to the end of it. Isn't that fun? I'm on this race. I'm on this journey. I'm, I'm on this, I'm on this uh, scavenger hunt, if you will. And I'm going to find most of the stuff, but I won't ever find all of the stuff. But there's going to be something in me that drives me to keep looking for the other stuff that I haven't found yet. And what's really cool is that when I check out and I'm not in the scavenger hunt anymore, I can actually leave behind for the people after me. Here's the signpost to the stuff I've already found. Build on that and find the next stuff. It's the reason why we have the understanding that we have now because we've built on what people have found before. But the only reason that we're able to do the building is because people before us were faithful to pursue truth honestly and with integrity. They weren't trying to reach a certain worldview. I want this to be my worldview, so I'm going to find that. No, they said, hey, I'm just... I'm going to look and see what's really there. And then finally, for, for us as Christians, if you truly believe in Christ and you've repented of your sins and you're being conformed to His image, when you do this, when you have these doubts, what you have to make sure you do is you maintain those things that cultivate a Christological focus. What you, what you don't do is you don't abandon Jesus altogether. You don't say, well, I can't figure out this, this moral dilemma with divine sovereignty, so pff, I'm just going to close my Bible and I'm going to quit going to church. I'm not going to pray anymore. I'm just, gonna, I'm just done with it. I'm just, I'm going to, I'm just going to go do something else. That violates the second thing that I just said. You're not pursuing the truth with honesty and integrity. But as a Christian person who's become convinced that Jesus Christ is the way, the, the truth, and the life, You've come to the understanding that the end goal of all things and the fulfillment of all things really is Jesus. And so no matter what else you do in this pursuit of truth, you don't abandon the one thing in the midst of all of your other uncertainty you can be certain of, and that's Jesus. I can be sure of this, so I will make sure that this is the starting point of this journey that I'm going on. I'll filter everything through the Christological reality of the greatness of Jesus. That's what I'll do. And you have to make sure that you maintain the things that help you keep that in focus. The reading of Scripture, prayer, life and community, attending to the means of grace. And This morning we get to participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. All of the other things that it says that we're supposed to be participants in. You maintain those things. You don't abandon those things. And that's how you deal with meaningful doubt. That's the place of doubt and uncertainty in the Christian experience. So, we have, because I intentionally made sure I was going to leave a few minutes, even starting late. It's not that late. <laughs> Do you have questions or comments about anything that I've just said? I want you to make two comments, first, please. First, uh, you, you mentioned the, uh, the idea of um, that, that a person who is an unbeliever may be better than a moral. With the, the opposite, apparent, apparent appearance. Right. Yeah. 
Yes. That that uh, that creates doubt and uncertainty. The common, the most common area, the, the trap that I think people fall into, unfaithful doubt, would be in well, the church is just full of hypocrites, and right. just sitting there, right, and just marinating in that, rather than right. intellectually and honestly pursuing, what about me? Sure. And 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 growing from that. Right. The second thing is. Uh, I love the idea of approaching it faithfully uh, in that Christ is the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that as we're discussing and, and wrestling through questions of modalism or whatever, right. um, there, we get knowledge. What have other people said about it? What does the Bible say about it? Uh, how, what, are the, what, the, what are the data points? We discern what it means and then pray for wisdom which God does not send you with. Right. James is a very important statement. Yes. That that's how to remain Christocentric is re realizing that even though there may be signposts all around, he's the true thing. Right. He's the end goal of it, and so staying focused on who he is and, and, and pursuing him is the way to way to do it. Absolutely. We all have doubts. Absolutely. We all have questions. We all have periods of of just a hazy darkness sometimes, almost a depression that yeah. will come on us and. Do I really believe this? That happens. That's either from sin or from spiritual attack or right. from just being uh, a perpetual agnostic uh, in, in our existence. I'm not sure that's okay. um, <laughs> but but I think that I think you're right. I think that the the realization that the only answer is going to be in Jesus. There are no there is no other treasure sure. of wisdom and knowledge out there. Right. And just pursuing Him with intent and hope. Right. Is the, is the, is the Because something bad happened to you, right? Because something bad. <clears throat> I I, I want to piggyback off that. I have I have said to people for years, and I say it to you now, uh, because you guys are are early enough on this this um, Christ journey for this to be most beneficial to you. You're going to have cataclysmic, faith-shattering events occur to you at some point in your life. For some of you, some of those have already happened. And they'll, they'll, they will continue to happen. They, they won't stop happening. That's the world that we live in. We live in a fallen, broken world that does that. The best time to prepare yourself for the uncertain times is during the certain times. When everything's going great and everything's fine and the flowers are all budding and the sun is shining, that's when you deal with this. When you're not doubting, that's when you deal with this. Because when the stuff comes on you, it's not the right time to be ready. It's just not. You need to be prepared. You can't get ready in the middle of a fight. That's why those of you who've had some military engagement, you know, they have basic training before you go to war. They don't give you basic training while you're at war. <laughs> There's a reason for that. There's preparation for the fight when you're not in it. That's why boxers have months of training before they have the championship fight, rather than saying, oh, well, I'll just loosen up the first round and we'll be ready to go. No. No. 
So you take the times that are good high times. The problem is, is that when we're in good high times is when we get lax and we get soft and we get comfortable. But it's during those times that you're supposed to do the hardest work because you actually have the leisure to do it. And it prepares you for what's later. What else? Any other questions or comments? Because we got three, four, eight, I was here 11 team minutes. I trying to think of a question, but I was like, no, I know the answer to that. I know the answer to that. And if we fall into that pride of our, our time, right. and it's, you have to remind yourself that you don't know. You need to stay in awe of God. And I don't really know that that's a question about that. No, no. And that's a great statement. And, and, and what's and beautiful in my, in my study of church history, um, there were a lot of guys who had uncertainty. And a lot of times their uncertainty led them to worship rather than to doubt. I know in particular when some of the Eastern um, theologians were working out some of the ideas of the Trinity. If you've ever really wrestled around with the idea of the Trinity in a meaningful way, it will cause you uncertainty. <laughs> and when you get to the end of it, you'll definitely be uncertain. There's no doubt. And, and these guys are just, they're working through this idea of the Trinity and just mid-sentence, just break into worship about how great and magnificent, mysterious God is. Wow, and this great, this wonderful, mysterious, awesome God that is this way. Their uncertainty led them to worship. You're going to have uncertainty. You're not God. Thank you for saying that. You don't know it all. And you won't ever know it all. You're always going to bump up against something that's gray. You're going to follow light, follow light, follow light, and then you're going to run into gray. And you're going to go, I know the light's around here somewhere because all these things are supposed to point to Jesus, but it's kind of foggy. And you're not going to know what to do with that. And then you have to come to the understanding, am I going to abandon all of this because it's foggy and I don't get it? Or is this going to be something that causes me to magnify the light that I do have in my mind because this is incredible about Jesus? And that's why I say you have to pursue it where it can be found. You have to be faithful with integrity in the pursuit. And you have to maintain Christological focus. You have to do that as a Christian. To not do that is to be humanist. And reason has become your God. And I appreciate the mantra of modern science. You know, observable and testable and, you know, question everything. That, you know what? Yes, absolutely. The problem is that your mind is not absolute. It's just not. At least mine's not. If yours is, I want to have lunch with you regularly and often. <laughs> I have lots of questions. Any others? Comments or questions? I know this is very different. Yes, sir. Um, you don't expect your pastor to come in and talk about this. But. I think one of the things that really <clears throat> jumped out at me is the positive spin that you put on it. Is that, um, sure, we have doubts and uncertainty. We're human. We're fallible. But that, hey, there's, there's always something more. There's more to God. God is bigger than me, and I like it. That's a challenge. i got to keep striving for it, keep seeking it. I, I really gravitated to that because it's so easy to go, you know, doubt and the pressure. i got to know stuff or the First Peter uh, thing. Always have an account for those. Right. Always have a, whatever the verse Reason. says. You know what I'm Reason about. to give, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that is kind of weighty. It's right. depressing. Thinking about doubt and thinking about your... Human limitations is difficult, mm -hmm. but positive spin, that positive spin is the faith and the joy that we always have to grab a hold of and chase down and focus on. And so that's, that's what really meant something to me. Okay. Yes, ma'am. For me, it underscores the importance of being involved in one another's lives on a more than surface, more than mm -hmm. Sunday morning basis. 
mm -hmm. where we can truly share. I'm, I, I don't understand this. That this blows my mind, or I don't like this, mm -hmm. or whatever it might be, and be honest with each other with the things that we're struggling with, so that as Christians we can say, okay, well, I may not understand that either, but what solid rock do we have mm -hmm. to stand on that we we know we can stand on we can think about what's true and right and honorable and pure and lovely sure. and excellent and think on those things and be sure because there are many things we can yes. be sure of there are so <clears throat> i think it's good to struggle through those things and then still remember the things that we can be sure of. <clears throat> and i like a word that tammy used there um she said certain things that you just don't like Maybe I'm very unrighteous. That happens to me a lot when I read the Bible. And it always has. And it still does. And I suspect that it will until I get conformed fully to the image of Jesus one day. There's a lot of things that I come across in the Bible that I just stop and go, wow. I just know how I feel about that. And, and some of it has to do with other people. You know, anytime I read the Joshua account, the whole book of Joshua makes me uncomfortable. Just go in and kill everybody. Kill the men, kill the women, kill, just kill everybody. I, I, I'm really uncomfortable with that. I just am. I'm just being honest. I'm really uncomfortable with it. But you know what else I'm also really uncomfortable with? Love your neighbor as yourself. And do good to those who mistreat you and abuse you. Now, I don't know. I, I want to then not be uncomfortable with the Joshua story anymore. I want to just go in and kill everybody. You know? And so, and so the, you know, the, it's, it's funny how that kind of flips back and forth. And so there's a lot of things that sometimes you hit them and you read them and you go, I just don't like that. And then I realize, well, there's, that's something wrong with me. And it goes back to point one. It could be sin related sometimes. Yes, sir. I don't think that's necessarily like if you struggle with that, I don't no, no, I'm not saying it's not uh, necessarily a good thing. Yeah. Like, it, it annoys me sometimes when I go to like apologetics and stuff. And I'm like, oh, there's really no problem with that. Oh, no, no. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. You know, you, God can do what he wants, right? Right. It's like, well, but if we're trying to love people like Christ more than anything. How does all that, we're gonna yeah, does all that fit together? Right. We love Christ. Right. And we're not going to have like a cheap answer, which I feel like a lot of apologetics on that gives like cheap answers on evil and stuff. And it's like, well... I don't know. I'm not going to act like, you know, oh, the tsunami was actually a good thing. You know. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, one thing I have to talk about, too, is like uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31, you know, do everything to the glory of God. And so mm -hmm. even in our doubting, we have to do it to the glory of God. Right. And the verse that helps me out a lot is uh, Isaiah 55, nine, which says, uh, as far as the heavens are above the earth, or as high as the heavens are above the earth, uh, so are my ways and your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we still come to every uh, dilemma or doubt or difficulty with just a, an awe of God and uh, just an acceptance of that there's an explanation, there's an understanding, there's uh, you know, something behind you know, what God is doing that we either um, you know, can worship, that we can worship Him for. And so, um, and I think that that verse just in particular when all the, just the difficult things come to my life that that is something that's helpful. Mm -hmm. That understanding that God does have a reason, does have an answer behind it. I have uh, just a story of a couple that was really uh, helpful for me too. Was um, they had just they'd been trying to get pregnant for a really long time. They finally got pregnant and they had, they miscarried, mm -hmm. and they were uh, just really really struggling with that. It was part of a guy's testimony, 
And he said that, you know, as they were sitting there and laying there, his wife asked him if when they got to heaven, if God would, um, you know, if they would understand why this happened. And he just said to her that he thinks that not only when they got to heaven that they'd understand, but they also would, would realize that they would have made the same decision. Hmm. And so, uh, just I think that all of this has to be approached with an attitude that really does trust the Lord. Sure. And that worships Him and does understand that His ways are higher and His thoughts higher and all those things. And so I think that's even why the book of Job mm-hmm. you know, was written. It's the, chronologically the first book in the Bible. And just that as we come to difficulty that we don't understand, um, you know, we can still fall down and worship. And God even doesn't give Job a reason. You know, right, He doesn't. Too. So there are, there are some things in life that we can pursue and that we can understand and we can get a grasp on. But there's other things, too, that we just have to understand who God is. Mm-hmm. And so I think a genuine just application of doubt in any person's life is just to go grab Grudem's systematic theology and start reading through God's characteristics. Mm-hmm. And it would mm-hmm. be a great help, you know, to someone who really does doubt the things that are difficult, like Deuteronomy 29, 29. Mm-hmm. The secret things belong to the Lord, and we can be okay with that mm-hmm. because we know, you know who God is. Right. And I want to... That's the danger, I think, in... In getting into doubting, that's why I like the focus of Naked Christological, is because of many times when we have the Canaanite slaughter, we immediately assign the bad motives. Sure, right. We malign his character with the type of doubting. Well, really, at that point, it doesn't become doubting. It becomes certainty that God is wrong. Sure, the, right. The Canaanite deal. So while there are cheap answers in apologetics, well, you know, whatever, maybe... The other, the cheap response to that is, well, that's evil because I decided that it's evil. Because I said God did something bad, right? And to piggyback off of both those to close, because we have to, we have to shut down, or I really will go until I have to preach in the next one in there. Um, um, I, I want to kind of jump on the top of the two combined thoughts here at the end. Um, I, I personally believe that one of the reasons why. Part of the human character, because this is this is pre-fall. This is who we are as human beings. Is a inherent permanent agnosticism, is that that drives us when properly applied and presented up against the character of God, that drives us to a humility, and we understand from Scripture that God gives grace to the humble. And so, when we have to come to the end of ourselves and realize and remember. There are things that I don't know. There are things that I can't know. There are actually some things I won't ever know. And we have to make that self-admission. I have been made to be one who doesn't know. That battles the greatest against pride. That drives the greatest toward humility. And that gives the greatest room for God's grace to come in and do the work that it's supposed to do in our lives. And so I think that this is very correct and true. When the true fullness of doubting comes, and it will, the true fullness of uncertainty comes, and it will, especially if you give any sort of meaningful thought to anything about how the world actually works, there's going to be a great deal of uncertainty that comes with this. That should drive you toward an understanding of the limitation of self, which should hopefully open the door to humility, which should hopefully open the door to the grace of God. That's what I was trying to strive for for the end of this thing, is that reality there. So let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you have made us frail and small and lowly. And Father, even in the great things that we're able to accomplish, for you gave us the command to subdue the earth and have dominion over it and to fill it, 
to be prophets and priests and kings upon this planet. And yet, Father, we are so lowly and so frail and so small. Compared to you, we are as but dust. And so, Father, we pray that in those moments of uncertainty, those moments of doubt, those moments of striving and struggle, that that would bring us to the end of ourselves, that would drive us to a place of humility, and that you, God, in kind, would show great compassion, and that you would fill us with your grace. For you have promised in your word that is never false, that you will give grace to the humble. Father, let this uh, reality of our own uncertainty be the thing that drives us to constant perpetual humility, not only before you, but before each other, so that we may be perpetually filled with the fullness of your grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.